Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is tech columnist Chris Matischik. Hope I got that right. That was pretty good for a first effort, John. Well done. I'm trying to get the previous pronunciation that I had in my brain expunged from my brain because it's kind of <laughs> taken control of my mind, and I don't even want to say it out loud because I'm desperate to never think that pronunciation again. Matichuk. Never say it again. Never, ever, ever. And uh, get with the action here with uh, Mr. Matichuk. So welcome to Background Mode. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, for the listeners, Chris Matischik is the president and of creative consultancy called Howard Ruckus LLC. I want to ask you about that. He advises corporations and individuals on content creation, advertising, and marketing. Also, for the last 13 years, he has been writing the technically incorrect column, first at CNET and now for ZDNet. And he also writes the absurdly driven column at Inc.com. So you and I are about the same age. I hope not. Um, You've well, done so much more. <laughs> but uh, I have a sense that you have a long story to tell, like me. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I, I, when we first connected, I heard a British accent, and you said there's a story there. Let's go back and talk about that, and then I wanted to ask you about how you got started writing. Well, um, my British accent for, uh, is actually fake. Um, I grew <laughs> really? really no, it really is because I grew up in a place. Are you familiar with Ozzy Osbourne? Uh, vaguely, I know the name. Okay, Black Sabbath. So as, essentially, uh, I was born in a place called Birmingham in the United Kingdom, which is like Detroit without the fun, and in <laughs> and it's, it's the kind of place where. You know, it was deeply industrial and dark, and my parents were refugees from a Stalinist labor camp. So we spoke Polish at home because they were Polish and they'd been dragged by Stalin into labor camps, and then they couldn't get their homes back after Yalta. So uh, I grew up in, in a, a tiny little 600-square-foot house with six people in it in a place called Birmingham. Now, when you grow up in a Polish family, and your parents have been displaced and incarcerated and all that kind of stuff, they tended to blame the English, even though they were living in England, because Yalta happened, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin sat there and decided to give Stalin my parents' homes. Um, and so the English were kind of our enemy. So we only were allowed to speak Polish at home, and we never had English people in the house for many, many years. So, and also we had no gadgets. We didn't have a car. We didn't have a even a landline. No, no gadgets. Ironically, my father though worked at the local university, putting punch cards into a big computer. And so, um, yes, English is my second language. It probably shows in the way I write because you know I, I clearly didn't learn it in a native manner. <laughs> and oh, my you're accent. You're an excellent writer. Thank you. I My answer stuff. Because where I come from, um, we actually talk like this, you see, but, you know, it's a sort of accent where you sound so stupid that no girl ever wants to go out. <laughs> this is the English accent with the Birmingham touch. That's right? correct. That's what Ozzy Osbourne sounds like. <laughs> blinders, if you've ever watched that. Yeah. Isn't there a big football team in Birmingham? 
you know, it depends team. on people big. I mean, we've got Aston Villa, which is just about hanging on the Premier League. And then you've got a team called Birmingham City, which probably will never be in the Premier League again. Then we've got West Bromwich Albion and Wolves are in the Premier League not far away. So, yeah, the, I used to go. Uh, that's one of the, the greatest pleasures when everyone used to stand on the terraces. We, we couldn't afford seats. We all stood there. How did you end up in Sausalito? You know, I got on a plane, John. Um, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, no, planes fly here. I, honestly, it's such a long story. I'll try and do it extremely briefly. Um, I, I got out of Birmingham as soon as I could. I went to Cambridge University. Then I went to the London School of Economics. I was utterly clueless. Ooh, that's about impressive. <laughs> you should you should attend them first before you say that. Um, <laughs> I don't want to prick the balloon of your magnificence. <laughs> and, uh, you know, honestly, all I ever wanted to do was actually play football. And when that was clearly not a possibility, um, you know, you had to go and do something. And I was naive enough to go to the career service and ask them what they thought I should do, because I had, I, honestly, I had no clue what I wanted to do. What was your and, degree from Cambridge? Uh, Cambridge was French and Spanish part one, social and political sciences with a thesis in football part two. And I'm not kidding. And uh, then at the London School of Economics, I did a postgraduate business, something or other thing. Ah, uh, hence the origins of your expertise in business consulting. Well, I wouldn't say that, but it was I, I, <laughs> I, learned lot, I learned a lot of things, put it that way. I learned a lot of things about things that I definitely had never seen growing up before. And so I went to the career service and I said, what do you think I should do? And they said, darling, with your personality, it's got. <laughs> It's got to be advertising. Well, they talk like that in career services. They're very posh. And uh, with your personality, it has to be television or advertising. And, of course, I stupidly said, well, which one pays more and has nicer women? I mean, an awful thing to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm ashamed of having said that. Um, but it is true, and uh, you want the truth out of me, so was, here we go. Was a respecter of being a television star? You know, I, I, probably if I'd have been a little smarter, and in fact, that's sort of carried with me all my life that I, I failed to do that. But I, I probably would have been had a lot of fun interviewing people on television because I enjoy that kind of thing. And uh, instead, uh, I went into advertising, became what they call a creative. And in those days, it was probably the sexiest thing you could do. Um, but no, actually, was this in UK or US? Yeah, it was in London. It was in London, and so I, I, you know, won a few awards and want to buy a Clio, gold Clio, John. I've got a gold Clio here oh, in my. Did you ever meet Jonathan Ive? Uh, actually, no. Um, I, I no reason to have met him, but uh, I, uh, after several, many, how many? God, a lot of years in, in London. I then moved to Singapore, where I was a creative director there for a couple of years, doing the ads for Singapore Airlines and Singapore Tourist Board and all sorts of other fascinating things, and also writing about football, uh, about Premier League football, which was quite funny. And then I moved from there to Poland, where I'd never been before, and I just happened to arrive there at the right time, and we were quite successful, the agency I worked for, especially as one day I realized that no one had ever mentioned domestic violence ever in the country in public. And the Catholic Church was rather for it, as far as I could tell. And so we did a campaign revealing that Grin some of the... Huh? Grin and Barrett Catholicism. <laughs> Well, you know, the patriarchal thing, they think as long as it happens in the house, it's fine. So um, we did this campaign, 
and it became i mean it totally radically changed a lot of th- i mean it ended up appearing on the front page of the new york times it was that big news i mean we not because we marketed it in any way um, but it instantly it got 30 pages of newspaper coverage in the first week. TV commercials were banned by the public station. So uh, that was probably the, the high point. We, 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 we were terribly successful. We won the first international awards for the country and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then when I gave up with that, um, I, I've always been into American sports. I love my NFL. I even more now love my baseball, which I never thought I would, but it is, it is the most gloriously civilized thing that I've ever witnessed. And, um, and I love my NBA, so I moved to Sausalito. There, that's the short version, John. How did you pick Sausalito? What was, well, what was special about uh, that? Well, for me, I got offered a job in San Francisco as the executive creative director of that agency, and that was just before the recession. So I moved here in May 2000, and I get seasonal affective disorder extremely badly, and so I wanted to live in sunshine. And actually, medically, I have to live in sunshine, and which is annoying to my wife because it means she can't go to Harvard. But um, yeah, so I, I moved here because it's sunny. And it's close to wineries and golf courses and, you know, the valley, because it's really not far to <laughs> you. It's, I don't have to go very far to encounter a nerd, put it that way. San Francisco is one of my favorite towns. South Salito yeah. just south, right? Just across the it's, it's just north. It's just the north just end north. of Gate okay. Bridge. Um, okay. So literally you drive north over the bridge and turn right and you're at my house. And, you know, I've got some wine here. So if you want to come over... Um, please just just let me know. San Francisco is one of my favorite towns. I spent a lot of time in San Francisco when I was working for Apple and going to WWDC and all that stuff. And uh, I have a great affection for that place. It's a really wonderful. You picked a great spot. You know, don't you think it's changed though? I don't know how when were the last time you were here was. It's changed quite a bit. Yeah, I haven't been to San Francisco for a while, maybe a decade. So um, if I had to live somewhere, I'd live somewhere around there. But Denver's yeah. my home, so Denver's where I'm going to stay. And Denver's a lovely place. It is. Very outdoorsy. I've been a big skier. I spent 23 years skiing. Oh, wow. So this seems to be about just before you started writing for CNET. Is that right? Well, yeah, not quite. Because um, then when I moved here, uh, the, the agency, uh, uh, 2001, everything went went crazy. There was no agency anymore. So I consulted. I was consulting for insurance companies and Coke and what have you. And then I got offered a big job in Manhattan. Oh, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. So what, I want to know what you were consulting with Coca-Cola on because that's oh, a I- hot button. Oh, no, no. Well, I'm sorry about the hot button. This We're talking 20 years ago. You think I even remember? I mean, I, no, I'm serious. Well, I mean, how does, one, one, how does one consult with a company that's got such a big brand and it's so imprinted well, in our brains? Well, I've run some of the worked on some of the biggest brands in the world, John. I mean, over the career. So, and I, I happen to know someone at Coke who wanted my advice, and so I helped her. Uh, if I could remember the brand, I want to say it was Sprite, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I forget things. I'm mean, just like movies. I watch them. I know which ones make me feel good, but don't remember. Yeah, what this is. I'm like you. Yeah just don't remember so um so you know it was nice doing bits of consultancy and actually relaxing in the sunshine i'm not denying that you know i i didn't relax a little bit too and then i got offered a big job in manhattan and went for that for whatever reason 
And, um, and honestly, I found Manhattan a bit boring. It must have been depressing going from Sausalito to Manhattan. I spent a lot of time in Manhattan myself, and it's not my favorite place. No, honestly, I love it, except if you live there. I mean, I lived 29th and 5th. So, you know, I lived right in town. I could walk to work. I, could, I was four steps away from the Empire State Building. But honestly, if you don't meet people you love wherever you move, and it's something I've learned living in lots of different places, if you don't meet people that you really enjoy being with, then it, a place can be miserable even when there's so much to do that you like. I mean, I could walk to the garden, see concerts. I could walk to Broadway. There was a lot you could do, but if you didn't have the right person to, or people to do it with, then it became dreary. And honestly, I got pretty miserable. And also, the higher up you get in these corporate organizations, it's all about politics. And I'm sure you can already tell I'm not very good at that. So um, it, it really isn't about how much talent you have. It's about how you can machinate and put someone else in a bad position to make yourself look better. And uh, that's just, I guess I don't really find much fun in that, John. I don't know about you. Maybe you enjoyed it when you were doing your corporate thing. Well, in Manhattan, one of the things I noticed was is I'm a sky person. And in Colorado, when you look up, you see blue sky. When you look horizontally, you see mountains, snow-capped yeah. mountains. Yeah. And in Manhattan, when you look up, all you see is the side of buildings, and you just see a <laughs> little slice of blue sky between the buildings. <laughs> it's that, true. That really depressed me. It's, it's uh, that's absolutely true. I I I like New York as a place. Just the particular experience I had turned out to be not so enjoyable, and so so I came back. Um, came back in 2007. I still had my house here, and uh, and I, I just came back in 2007. How did so, you how did you start to get writing as a, <laughs> as a tech columnist? I want to hear how you got that job because awesome. you've been you were business consultant. All of a sudden, now you're writing these humorous, edgy columns. Who yeah, offered I'm, you that job? And how did they find out be, about you? Yeah, I've always wanted to be a tech columnist. He lied. Um, look, once, <laughs> once upon a time, <laughs> once upon a time, I, I used to write about sports because I loved it, and people would ask me occasionally. Once you get published, people see it, and then other publications. So when I lived in Singapore, I had a column about football. I used to write a little bit about golf. Oh. Um, and so I liked that side of things, but I had no zero. When I came back in 2007, my ambition was to do carry on doing a little bits of consultancy here and there and to play a bit of golf. I just happen to like golf. I don't like the snobby part of it, but any ball sports for me are that there's joy in that, you know. And so it, it so happened that through a, a friend, I met someone called Dan Farber and Dan Farber at the time was, I believe, actually editor-in-chief of ZDNet. And so we became friends. And he said to me one day, you know, you should write something. And I said, what about? He said, tech. And I said, but I can't even format Microsoft Word. He said, I'll take you to this thing. And this thing turned out to be the Singularity Summit. Are you familiar with that, John? No, I've never heard of that. The Singularity Summit was when a lot of insanely clever people stand on stage and salivate over one day becoming robots. Oh, and oh, oh, the, the AI singularity. Yeah. Yeah, I and have heard of that. That's the, that's the Ray Kurzweil thing. Yeah. And so Dan said to me, look, I'll, I'll live blog it and you do some commentary while we're there. 
And I said, what are you talking about? What's live blogging? He said, well, I'm going to do the, think of it this way. I'm going to do the play-by-play and you do the color commentary. So, you know, I, th- I thought these people were utterly ridiculous on stage. It was like watching the, 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 the most exalted form of absurdist theater, people desperate to become machines. And so Dan would, would write this stuff and I would write my jokes. And then he'd just <laughs> he'd press play and publish them. And I, I found this fascinating. And so uh, he said, oh, that got a good reaction. Why don't you write something else? And I said, well, what about? He said, tech. He said, but don't write about religion or sex. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, when people tell me don't, <clears throat> bad move. Um, and there's an ad. I see the ad coming up. Um, and we'll get to so, it in a second. Okay. And so... Um, that's how it all started. And that's how Technically Incorrect started, because he, he asked me to write regular columns. Cool. Well, that's a good place to break. When we come back in the second half of the show, I want to ask you about some of these articles that you've written that caught my attention. But first, a word from our sponsor, folks. We'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with Chris Matischik of ZDNet. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash BGM. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com forward slash BGM. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Chris Matches Chick. So, um... You have a witty, irreverent, playful style, and now I understand where it came from, that over the years has really appealed to me. And I've often referenced you in my Friday column, Particle Debris. The first one I saw was entitled 2009 to 2019, How Apple, Google, and Friends Drove Us Mad. So what, what was happening there with that article? Tell me about it. You think I remember that article, John? I'd have to look. <laughs> Do you remember everything you write? I, I, yes. I, I, do you? Yes. God. Oh, I, I must want to sit here and look it up. How Apple, Google, and friends. Uh, okay, let me look it up. I have no idea. Oh, here we are. Hang on. I just saw it. Yeah. I, I, what did I write about? I didn't you put t- you on the spot, but I, it took Oh, no, you fancy. just did. It's, it's spectacular. Um, <laughs> oh, look. I wrote it. How Apple, Google, and friends are Oh, yeah, well, yes. Did I think one of the fundamental questions for me from the very beginning? Um, I, I clearly am not a nerd, and I'm sort of part of me is embarrassed about that because I really admire 
the things that nerds can do, especially these days, to affect so much of society. But I think it's a fair question to ask every time these tech companies say they're making the world a better place, or whether they actually are. I mean, I can remember writing in 2010 um, about Mark Zuckerberg, who seriously actually had the gall, child though he was in those days, to claim that he knew people didn't want privacy anymore. And he would be deified. The, the mere thought that I was writing these, possibly you might even argue, critical articles about him. Um, but no, you're not supposed to do that. This is a man creating a, an extraordinary new world. And I'm really not convinced that he, they necessarily did. They, we've become very much, I think, the thought process in which a lot of technology is created involves creating a whole system that needs everyone to function within that system. And so what tech companies always have to do is to get as many people as possible sucked into that system. Otherwise, the system won't work. And we, and it's our fault. I mean, we we blindly walk into this, and we don't appreciate the consequences because we enjoy some of the technical fripperies and excitements that we get. You know, like posting a photograph on Facebook and getting twelve likes. And equally, I think the people creating these systems don't think through the consequences at all. Yeah, I think there's something about the internet structure and the digital nature of it. In the old days, products would get enhanced, and you'd read an article about it in Car and Driver, you know, you had a better transmission in this 1957 Buick, and then you'd read the article and you'd approve of it, and you'd go down to your Buick dealer and you'd buy this cool car. But now, there's the whole world is involved in everything, and there's so much digital transmission going on that, as you said, there has to be this psychological momentum that's almost like propaganda. Yeah. yeah, it's true. I think when you look at former Facebook executives who are now suddenly panicking about what Facebook is doing to their children, uh, yeah, okay, but at the time you were using every neurological tool at your disposal to make sure everyone got hooked. So the fact that you've made your billions and now feel somewhat guilty is a little, how can I put it, rich. It's, you know, uh, why didn't you think about that at the time? But they didn't. And there's also some sort of technical momentum that's hard to overcome. You know, you see people taking videos with their iPhones, and every mm -hmm. video you've ever watched on television has been landscape mode. Mm -hmm. And every video that is properly taken is, you know, 4 by 3 or 16 by 9 mm -hmm. And yet when people shoot video, because of the way the the iPhone is structured and because of the way you hold it in your hand, people shoot video in portrait mode. Mm -hmm. And then when you see it on TV, because they shared it with the television station, they have to put these video bars on the side of it in order to make up for the fact that it's not in landscape mode. And at Mac Observer, we, you know, we tell people, you know, do this, and they don't follow that advice because there's this psychological momentum and it drives you crazy because people just get on this bandwagon and it's hard to, you know, sometimes get things technically straight. Uh, and, and I agree with you. And, and more than that, don't you get, I get driven utterly mad going to a concert 
when no one's actually watching the concert and they're all filming it. And you, you're literally attending something that you're supposed to, is supposed to be a shared experience, but the version of the shared experience a lot of people seem to want is simply to be able to film it and then maybe watch it 10 times later or show it to their friends. Uh, or the mistaken perception that somehow capturing it and sharing it and archiving it is a more laudable process than actually enjoying the experience yourself. Exactly. And, you know, it, and now we're being driven even more, I think, headlong into a belief that a lot of experiences can now be had online. That, especially now as we're all sitting in shelter in place, you know, we can tour museums online, we can do all kinds of things and never have to physically go there. And I, I, forgive me, but I prefer hugging people, hanging out and laughing with people and going to concerts with people. And I find that real. I don't find what happens through the Internet as quite as real, shall we say. You wrote another article recently I wanted to ask you about. It was really recently. Apple's iPhone SE isn't as popular because it's cheap, says Tim Cook. You know, I listened real time to that same comment because we listened to the earnings calls and then report on it here at the Mac Observer. And when I heard Tim Cook say that, somehow it didn't click in my brain the same way it clicked in your brain. <laughs> Tell me about your version. But, John, that's a good thing. Can you imagine how tortured my brain is? It would be awful for you. It would be awful for you if you had were to live inside my head. You cannot even begin to conceive the mess that's in there. For me, when I, when I, when I read words or listen to these calls, executives' words, Tim Cook, I think, I mean, he's done an extraordinary job in many ways, especially coming from a place where everyone just thought he was a manager, not someone with any particular leadership capabilities. I think he's navigated the growth of Apple in a really remarkably, both intelligent and relatively sensitive way. However, when you listen to the words that he and so many other executives use to describe what they're doing, and you stop to analyze those words a little bit. And in this particular case, he was doing everything possible to try and make you believe that, no, 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 the price of the iPhone was just, it's just a, of the iPhone SE was just a little added extra. Really, it was people wanting a slightly smaller phone or people wanting to come over from Android. Well, yeah, but they also want the $399, not the 1000 and he, he, he was even got to the point of calling it a wonderful deal, um, which, okay, yes, it is. I absolutely don't dispute that. But personally, I, f I find if you really listen to what people say or just sit and look at the words, you may find something different in them than the intention they had in trying to manipulate you using them. Well, Tim is a front of analysts, and he has to be very careful in his choice of words in front of these analysts because they're the ones who are going to write notes to their investors. Yep, yep. So recently you had an interesting MacBook Air adventure. I was rolling on the floor laughing, as was the <laughs> Apple with salesman, which I found kind of disconcerting. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Oh. I don't mean to, no, I don't agree. I don't want to ever disconcert anyone. But you see, for me, 
I, I've named myself the unofficial uh, phone store ambassador before for CDET and now for ZDNet. One thing I bother doing, because honestly it interests me, again, it's what we're talking about where I don't want to just read about products online. I want to actually go to a store, talk to a store employee, and see what they say, see how they present it, see how, much, yeah. see how much inside stuff they tell me. And what happens over time is that you get contacted by other store employees who say, thank you for telling that story because that's actually my story. That is actually what's happening to me at, for argument's sake, a, a Verizon store. I remember writing once about a guy who had had enough of working for a Verizon store, and he had many complaints. And other Verizon store employees said, wrote to me afterwards going, thank goodness you said these things. This is absolutely how it is. This is exactly my story. And what happens well, is you... That's one thing you do as a writer. You just prick through the uh, facade and get right to the point and rip away the uh, assumptions and get, and get down to something that's really basic and blow things up and, and uh, it kind of uh, it can annoy people who don't think deeply about their Apple loyalty. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I rip things. I'm not that aggressive. It's, I, I honestly just try and find the, the, the human kinks in it all because so much of tech writing, I hate to say it, is, is inanimate. It, it, it's so often about hero, heroes of a sort, of a particular technical sort, or it's about the things the things, the, the classic, of course, is that for so many years, every nerd believed the more features a phone had, the more successful the phone would be. Human beings are not like that. Human beings want to feel something. That's something Steve Jobs really understood. That human beings want actually the technology to be simpler, not to have more features, but to actually have features you can use and features that you instinctively know how to use. I think and, these features that get added are features that Apple knows are going to be addictive. Apple Pay cash and emojis and other it, little it, trinkets and toys that are sort of like dangling before your eyes as toys to play with. You're right. I think that the irony is Tim Cook says we want you to use your iPhone less while iPhone actually creates more and more things for you to be attached to it. So, um, yeah, it, it, I, I honestly don't think of myself as exploding, but I do want, because I think it's the most interesting part of life, to be able to tell people's stories, human stories. The, the, the nuances that I write about, I think, quite often are about human uh, what have, uh, foibles, let's say. And so that's what I'm really looking at, same as with whatever Tim Cook tells analysts, to whether it's the story of a Verizon store employee who may or may not be in a good mood, may or may not tell me lies, which I don't mind. You know, if they're going to tell me lies, that's okay. Um, because actually some of them are very sincere kind of slates of hand, and I almost enjoy it. So every conversation I have with these story employees is, is almost everyone is an absolutely entertaining, interesting. I walk out of there, learn something, and write straight away because uh, it's remarkable what people are like when you're just talking to them one-on-one. -on -one. We got diverted there a little bit. Uh, we were in the middle of your MacBook Air story. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> well, what happened was that I, I'm in touch with several Apple employees who are still prepared, obviously anonymously, to talk to me and tell me what they think. And so when my MacBook Air, the keys, the keyboard, the awful, awful butterfly keyboard was falling apart, I because I was in lockdown, I needed a computer that could work. It was the first time ever I'd bought a computer without looking at it first, uh, physically. And so I actually, I contacted an Apple Store employee who was sitting at home, and he happily laughed at me. That that that's you the know. part that annoyed me. Oh, it doesn't annoy me in the slightest, though, because you see, he's being honest. Instead of being some kind of, he knows I'm never going to identify him. He knows that I'm not going to cheat him, cheat him in any way. I think it's actually again, I'm telling his human story. So sometimes. And even when I talk to these people live, they will tell me things that really they shouldn't be telling me at all. And I'll never... That's true of my guests as well. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And I don't mind that because I think it creates a more honest story that people can feel. So not at any point did I think he was being insulting. I mean, we have a regular banter. And to me, it was just... He, he was actually kind of chuckling at the dilemma that in particular, my particular dilemma at that time, he was just chuckling at me. And he's a lovely person, and he's someone that I'd contact again, and he'll probably chuckle at me again, and I'll chuckle at him for working. He recommended you buy an iPad Pro with a Magic Keyboard as a writer. Yeah, he did. Well, yeah, quite. I I haven't actually tried the Magic Keyboard, but I do have a 12.9, and no, I can't write articles on that. It, it just, you know, I, I again, I, do you write at a desk, John? You you yes. like to sit at a desk? See, I can't do that. Um, it just feels too regimented for me. So I write sort of semi-prostrate. And um, in fact, I'm talking to you now semi-prostrate, not that you wanted to know that. But, um, you know, I look a little like Cleopatra on a bad day. So um, Can you send I'm, me a PR photo of that for the article? <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting on a chaise longue right now. Um, so it's, it's, um, it, it's one of those things where... Uh, I can't. I, uh, to me, a laptop is fundamentally for a lap. And if you write on a lap, um, the iPad is not going to do it for you. Oh, I write with a Mac Pro and a 34-inch display. Oh, wow. And an Apple aluminum keyboard, the aircraft carrier, big white one. Wow. So you're a professional. I'm just a sad, creative person. So, you know, I, I, I can just prop it up on my knee and, and type oh, away. See, I can't stand overlapping windows. I hate overlapping windows. I need a 34. I can't use a 27-inch display anymore. Really? Because uh, it causes uh, windows to overlap. So oh, wow. I got a, a Halo Packard 34-inch. Well, cur- need- it's curved. I got 13 inches. It's sexy. Yeah, my wife has a curved Samsung uh, screen, but but mine, no, I just write on the laptop. It's um, it's it just feels far simpler that way to me. And then I can do it anywhere. You know, I can write in the airport, um, write wherever. Mm, cool. Well, we're about out of time. We've burned through thirty-four minutes and twenty-nine seconds. I can't believe it, Chris. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't I'll be sorry. It's been a, it's, it's been a fun half an hour talking to you. It's a pleasure. I really. never had this mental image of you before when I read your articles. I thought, you know, this is a guy with a funny name who writes funny articles. 
<laughs> but having you on the show and getting to know you is, it brings a lot more life and color to the yeah, articles funny that I've loved that you've written. Funny name and funny voice now, you see, you've added to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anything you want to wrap up with or shall we just close it down? Happy to close it down. You are the boss, John. I'm very happy to have been on your show. And uh, it's a privilege. I'm very happy to have had you. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. The simplest way is go on Twitter, and it's just at Chris Matyszczyk. It's easy to spell, M-A-T-Y-S-Z-C-Z-Y-K. Yeah, absolutely easy to spell. All right, cool. <laughs> All right, folks, you've been listening to John Marchalero and Chris Matyszczyk on the Mac Observer's background mode. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week. <laughs>